If you've ever invested in a mutual fund or in the stock market, if you've ever read a prospectus, you know that individual results may vary. If you've used hair restoration products, and by the way, no, I haven't tried those yet, uh, or Nutrisystems, or the latest workout fad, you have come to know that individual results may vary. So it is with the sowing of God's word. The casting forth of the seed of the gospel goes into the world and the Christian perspective tells us that individual results will vary. From Cain and Abel to Jacob and Esau to Saul and King David to Peter and Judas. Results can greatly vary. When man encounters God's word, only God knows what will take place in that life. This was the case even for the ultimate sower of seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was among mankind. It was the case for his 12 disciples that he left to fulfill the Great Commission. It was the case in Matthew's first century church. And it is the case here today in our church and in our lives. Whenever we disseminate gospel seed, drastically different results from the soil of one human heart to the next will come about. It's amazing how drastic these results can be different, how, how much variety there can actually be, even within the same household, even within the same group of 12 disciples. The title this morning is Varying Results of Seed Sowing. Part one. Our text is Matthew 13, 1 to 23. So please go there with me. Matthew 13 and 1 to 23. So I'm not going to read the entire text now. We're going to read uh, most of this text as we go. But I want to go ahead and give you the text idea. As we begin, the big idea of this passage, Matthew 13, 1 to 23, is this. After being rejected by Israel's hardened religious leaders, Jesus spoke a parable to the crowd with an explanation for disciples only to teach them that seed sowing has varying results. I labored over this sentence to try to be able to capture everything that's going on in these verses, these 23 verses of Matthew 13. And I believe that this, at least it's my best effort to do that. Jesus now begins to speak in parables to the crowd, but then will explain in private to the disciples for the purpose of teaching the disciples here, not the crowd, that seed sowing or gospel ministry has varying results. That is the big idea. That brings us to our sermon idea then. Matthew 13, 1 to 23 teaches disciples about the varying results of gospel ministry. Everything in this passage will somehow point to this single idea. So that gives you the bird's eye view before we get into the details. I have a, really a twofold sermon purpose today. Given the, the breadth of this of this passage, number one, I want to encourage disciples. I want to encourage followers of Christ 
to be faithful in seed sowing by leaving the results to God. As we trust God with his seed, as we trust God to prepare soil, we sow faithfully and hopefully, but leaving the results to him. And so that is one of my purposes today is that you would leave here encouraged to do that more regularly, and more faithfully. Secondly, I want to challenge all of us to ask this question as we go through this parable, which result best describes my life? There'll be four in total. And as we work through them, I want you to constantly be pondering the question, which one of these describes me? So let's begin with verses one to four then of Matthew 13. It says that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them, the whole crowd in parables saying, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. We're going to stop right there for now. This passage begins with two important words that day. This tells us the historical setting. This takes us back to chapter 12 and the setting of chapter 12, because it's still the same day. That day reminds us that Jesus has just been rejected formally and officially by the religious leadership called the Pharisees. That day reminds us that the Pharisees have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit by saying Jesus did this amazing miracle that proved that he was the Messiah through the power of Satan. That day reminds us that there has been a change in relationships with his biological family. That Jesus has now been misunderstood by his family. His brothers were unbelievers. And we learned about that last week. And so there's a lot going on here. There were warnings throughout chapters 11 and 12 of Jesus giving to the crowds for unbelief. That this is a very serious situation. And Jesus is, without mincing any words, warning people about the consequences of their unbelief and rejection. It was that day that Jesus went out of the house. We learned last week that he was inside a house, a crowded house, teaching his disciples, those sitting at his feet and making a distinction between his biological family and his spiritual family. And then he finally finished that message and that lesson. And he left that house and he went to sit by the sea. And sea is really not the best translation because we think of ocean. This is a lake. This is the. Uh, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. It's fresh water. It's a large lake and Jesus went to sit down by the sea. And this is one of the few times we see Jesus sitting. (laughs) It's like he's finally taking a break. He's sitting by the sea and right away, large crowds gather to him. He is a magnet for the large crowds, for the multitudes. So the people probably followed him out of the house. Other people saw what was going on and they gather to him. Break time is over and there's no rest for the son of God. He is working constantly. Verse two, these large crowds gather. He got into a boat, really a large canoe. I've seen one that's been excavated from this very spot and they weren't that big. A a, a large kind of think oversized canoe. And he gets into this boat and he sits down. They, They obviously would anchor it in some way. And the whole crowd now is standing on the beach. So the people are standing and Jesus is sitting. He's in the posture now of a teaching rabbi. It says he sat down. This reminds us of Matthew 5, 1 before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down and the people gathered to him. 
And so this is the way they would do things in Judaism. We're doing it just the opposite. (laughs) I'm supposed to be sitting and you're supposed to be standing. (laughs) Actually, I prefer to stand, so it's fine. But that was the the common uh, practice in Judaism. And so Jesus now is sitting in this boat. And if you've ever spoken across water, it's, it's wonderful for these purposes. It doesn't absorb any sound. Sound travels beautifully across water. And so now Jesus is going to uh, move into another set of sermons and lessons while the crowd stands on the beach. And it says there in verse three, he spoke many things to them and please underline to them. Who is he speaking to here? He is speaking to the whole crowd. Now, of course, his disciples uh, would be included in the crowd. They would be hearing, but he's his his audience is the crowd. Now, this is a public setting. And it says here for the first time in Matthew that he spoke in parables. Now, he's used illustrations before he's used what we might call short parables before. But this is the first use of the word parable in the gospel of Matthew. This word will be used now 12 times in this chapter. So it's a, it's certainly a change of gears is taking place. Parables then will become his response. Watch this. Parables will become his response to unbelief. That's why I made such a big deal out of that day. The context, the historical context of these parables of Matthew 13 is rejection. And this will be how Jesus responds to rejection. He will respond with parables. There will be nothing but riddles. Now on for the crowds. That's all they will get going forward. And so as we come into Matthew 13, if you have a red letter Bible, it's nearly all red. And that's because this is the third major block of teaching in the gospel of Matthew. There will be five in total. We are now on number three. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount, five to seven. The second one was chapter 10, missionary instructions. And now this is the third one, parables. Matthew 13, there'll be two more to come. He began to spoke in parables. Something I learned this week is that this word is actually common in the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, this word parable is used 45 times. It reminds us that this was a common teaching technique in Judaism. Parables are not new with Jesus. He just adopted them and embraced them and used them frequently. But it was a common teaching technique. So what is a parable? The word literally means to throw alongside comes from two Greek words that means to throw or cast alongside a parable is a long analogy, a parable. Some of them are short. Some of them are very long, but they're an analogy or a comparison where the person speaking throws alongside a concrete subject, an abstract subject. Where the, the, the teacher will speak about a known item to teach an unknown item. This is a parable. It is a, it's a, an extended comparison. They often come to us in story form. We're aware of that. We think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a story. We think of the parable of the prodigal son. It's a, it's a long story. And so you have a comparison between the known and the unknown, between the concrete and the abstract for the purpose of revealing and teaching about the abstract. Now, parables will require more explanation and teaching than a basic illustration will. A good illustration needs no explanation, right? So like, for example, 
Uh, When Jesus said uh, he will be like a man who built his house on the rock, he didn't need to explain what he meant there. That's self-apparent. But a parable is different. A parable is mysterious until you have the explanation. When we talk about the parables of Jesus, he drew all of his parables either from nature or or from human affairs. From nature or from human affairs. And so this is a, a key transitional moment in the Gospel of Matthew as the rejected Messiah now takes up a new form of teaching called parables. And it was so new and it was so different that after he gives the first parable or the first few, perhaps the first thing on the disciples mind is not explain this parable or that parable. But their first question is, why parables? Look at verse 10. You can see that. This is how Matthew arranges it. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them, the crowds, in parables? Plural. So he's already given more than one at that point. And they want to know why. This is new. This is different. You've never done this before, Jesus. Why are you doing this? And so 10 to 17 is basically his answer. Let me give you the short answer of why parables. The short answer of 10 to 17, which will be part two next week. He gives parables to conceal the truth and to reveal the truth. That's the short answer. He's going to hide truth with parables and he's going to expose truth with parables. And we'll see a whole lot more about that next week. While we're thinking about parables, before we go on, we need to ask the question, well, how do you interpret parables? My answer, very carefully. There's been so much abuse and misuse and, and, and elaboration of parables way beyond stretching them way beyond the breaking point. There's some hilarious examples in church history uh, of people going to a parable and just making it mean all kinds of things that the text and Jesus never meant. So we need to interpret them very, very carefully. A parable usually has one central truth that is supported by details But we should not make too much of the details. This is where people get in trouble. They go to every detail of a parable and they like build a doctrine on it. They begin to build a superstructure out of what is just a detail. And they press them past their breaking point. So we need to be careful to walk this tightrope walk that there's, there's, there's likely a central point here. And then these details that fill it in. I want to go back to one thing that I skipped over to show you in chapter 13 that is so important when we think about this idea of concealing and revealing. When we think about this idea of public and private, uh, you've got to see this to understand chapter 13. So looking at the text, I want you to see that verses 3 to 9 was to the crowd. And there is no explanation for them. None. Then verses 10 to 23... Is to the disciples and the disciples only. Okay. Drop down to verse 24. And from verse 24 to 33. That's for the crowds. Keeping in mind that the disciples are always part of the crowd. But that's directed to the crowds. And there will be no explanation for them. And then verses 36 to 52. Is for the disciples. Private. 34 and 35 is for the reader. It's a parenthetical. 
So this is the outline, the layout of this chapter. Public, private. Public, private. Now we're in the parable of the sower, it's called, which is an interesting title. It comes from verse 18. Jesus says here then the parable of the sower. And certainly the sower is is important and the sower is in the parable. And, and Jesus, of course, is the ultimate sower of seed and his disciples follow in his footsteps. But parable of the sower is is uh, not perhaps the best way to think of this as far as what it's about and what its emphasis is, because the emphasis of this parable is not on the sower. The emphasis is not on the soil. The emphasis is on the fate of the seed. The big picture of this parable is what happens to the seed. It's the same seed in every case. But the results will vary from case to case. The big idea of the parable of the sower is the variety of results of seed sowing. Keeping in mind that the explanation went to the disciples, not the crowds. This tells us that the point of this parable is for us. Jesus wants to teach disciples that when you sow seeds, expect various results. And he's going to show us what those results will look like. Now, as we go through this parable, the movement is from bad to best. The movement is from terrible to wonderful as we move along. There is a a direction uh, going here, taking place. All right, so let's jump into this parable then. In verse 3, Behold, look, the sower went out to sow. Well, of course he did. That's what sowers do. And you got to go out to sow. You can't stay inside and sow. So the picture you need to have, this is still going on today in parts of the world, is a, is a person walking through a field with a bag strapped over their shoulder full of seed. And they're broadcasting this seed. They're reaching into the bag and they're sowing seed. And they're sowing seed. And the wind blows some of it different places. And they're sowing seed along here and over there. And and it's just indiscriminate at times sowing of this seed. It might be for wheat or for barley or whatever the crop might be. But this is what the sowers do. The sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, verse 4, some seeds fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate them up. Beside the road speaks of what would have been a hard-packed packed footpath through the fields. We've talked about this in times past. There would have been these paths that went right through the fields that people used to travel around on foot and also animals. And so it would have been packed hard, just like packed dirt here in our culture would be in our area of the world. It would be as hard as concrete almost. These footpaths baked by the sun, right? Baked by the sun, packed down by human traffic and animal traffic. And so some of the seed falls on this. It would be like almost falling on pavement, falling on concrete. And so it falls beside the road and the birds come and eat them up. You can picture the birds are following the sower. This is like seagulls at the beach looking for a handout. They're following the sower and they're gobbling up this seed as soon as it hits the ground. It hasn't been there no time at all. It's easy pickings for the birds to take this away. And it's a complete loss then of the seed. The seed doesn't even reach any dirt. The seed doesn't even begin to think about germinating. The seed goes nowhere and the birds come and consume it. 
and consume it. Now, remember, this is all the crowd would have got. That's it. They would have been familiar with what he's talking about. Many of them would have seen the exact thing that he just described. This is a known to an unknown. But they would have no idea what he's talking about. It would just be, they would be completely lost as to what the point was, what the message was for them. When in fact, he was speaking of some of them there in the crowd. The first result then, the first result of seed sowing is this. The seed is snatched away by the devil and he's pictured here as hungry birds. How do we know this? Because we got private tutoring. <laughs> Look at verse 18. We get a private explanation in the word of God here. Here then the parable, the comparison of the sower. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the message of the king and his kingdom, when anyone hears the gospel, the good news that God has come in the person of Christ, offering his glorious millennial kingdom to his people, when anyone hears this message and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Here Jesus speaks then of the heart that is hardened by sin, like a footpath is hardened by foot traffic. Hardened by the traffic of sin, hardened by divine abandonment of that person, hardened by satanic opposition. He is primarily here in context speaking of those religious yet hardened Pharisees who have rejected him, who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. These legalists, these moralists, who thought they were right with God because they kept the law in their minds and because they were children of Abraham, and yet their hearts are a stone, Jesus is saying in this parable. And he's teaching this and explaining this to his disciples. This, this He's wanting the disciples to understand, how come the Pharisees are rejecting you? This is why they're rejecting me. They have a heart of stone. And in the parable, the seed then lies on the surface of the stony heart. It never sinks in. I mean, this is not even in one one ear out the other. That's that's too much to, to describe this. It never touches any kind of thought. There is zero penetration here in this soil. There is no interest. Jesus is describing the person with zero interest to the things of God. Zero interest in the Bible, in Christ, in talking about sin, in heaven and hell. They are a stone cold, no interest whatsoever. This is a person with complete indifference to the things of the gospel. And for someone to have complete indifference then, you're talking about someone who is self-righteous, someone who is self Reliant, someone who is self-satisfied, someone who is going their own, own way, full of themselves, with no need for God. This is a self-made man or woman, and this person is completely spiritually blind. They don't understand that God is their creator and lawgiver. They don't understand that they've fallen short of the glory of God. They don't understand that they need a Savior to cover them, to give them entrance into heaven. And so this person has no need for Christ in their life. Zero. They're happy without Christ. They're rocking along just fine. And so whenever the seed of the gospel even comes close to them, even comes near them, Satan swoops in and snatches it away before there can be any penetration whatsoever. Paul described these people this way. 
He said, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Second Corinthians four, three and four. So Paul went about preaching the gospel. He encountered these people who were just completely blind to it, veiled to it, and in fact would turn on him. He says in 2 Timothy 2.26 that unbelievers are in the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. They're trapped. They're in a snare. They can't get loose. And they're held hostage by the greatest tyrant that the world has ever seen. The worst terrorist that, that mankind has ever experienced. And he holds people captive to do his will. This is the one where the seed falls by the wayside. We know from just observation in church history that the devil uses every means available to him to snatch away the seed of the gospel. The devil comes in the form of everything from Joel Osteen to pornography. The devil comes in the form of everything from Islam to Mormonism. Right? He comes in the form of materialism to humanism to socialism to evolution. The devil comes to try to snatch away the seed of God's truth in all of these various forms. He is constantly active in this way. I wonder this morning if he's active in this way with someone here right now. Is someone right now characterized by hard-hearted rejection of Christ, of complete disinterest and no penetration of the Word of God? The second result of seed sowing comes in the next section, verses 5 and 6. The second result is the seed is scorched by persecution, pictured as the blazing sun. So look at verses 5 and 6 now, back to the public part. Others, other seeds fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. They withered away. And so what he's describing here is not rocky places like we have outside our doors right now. Not a, not a, a ground that's just scattered with a lot of loose rocks and gravel and that kind of thing. What he's talking about is bedrock. A layer of rock that has on top of it the thinnest layer of topsoil. Very thin. And that's what Jesus is here describing. Some of the seed fell on just such a place. And at the time of the sowing of this seed, because that rock is going to be warmed by the daily sun, that soil is going to be warm. And if it's early in the morning, that soil is going to have just enough warmth and moisture For that seed to germinate and to germinate instantly. And that's what he describes. There is an instant germination, an instant springing up in this shallow, shallow soil. But when the sun, notice, had fully risen, when the sun had risen and it always does. It always does. The heat always comes. The leafy plant is quickly and immediately scorched. It's torched. It's cooked. It's killed. 
The sun kills the leafy plant because it's all leaf and no root. The crowd says, yeah, I've seen that before. I've seen that before. I've seen a flower bloom and wither within minutes on the same day, they would say, in Middle East culture. But they would not know what he was talking about. They would not know that he was talking about some of them. The crowd that flocked to him as soon as he left the house. The crowd that is excited to hear him. The crowd that is excited to see miracles. He's talking to them with this parable, but they don't know it. Because they would be the fickle crowd, wouldn't they? Oh, they're excited. They spring up immediately. They flock to Jesus, but they're very fickle. The same crowd that's praising him at the at the uh, triumphal entry is crying five days later, crucify him, right? It's a fickle group. The seed is scorched then by persecution. How do we know? Because we got private tutoring, verses 20 and 21. Jump down. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So the seed is sown. And the result is immediate joy. There is immediate elation over this seed. It's incredible. There's instant interest and embracing here described in verses 20 and 21. On the rocky places, the man hears the word. He hears the word of the kingdom. He hears the gospel. He immediately receives it with joy. Oh, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. Yes, 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 yes. I take it. I take it right now. I take it. But he has no root. He's going to pass away because he can't withstand the affliction or persecution that is surely to come as the sun is surely to rise. And when it does come, when that test does come, he will instantly and immediately scandalize, fall away. Seed sown, the sower, the undiscerning sower sees this immediate reaction of joy and elation. And he says, yes, awesome. Another conversion. Put it in the newsletter. (laughs) Announce it to the church. Plaster it on some kind of board. Count the heads. We've got another conversion to Christ. And Coach Corso would say, not so fast, my friend. Not so fast. Jesus is describing a fair weather fan. Not a disciple. Not a true believer. This is someone who is along for the ride of the glory of fair weather fandom. This is a person just like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. Simon was a person that heard the gospel. He immediately responded just like this. He professed openly faith in Christ. He was baptized. And then as the story goes on, Simon goes to Peter and he asks him to give him the power to bestow the Holy Spirit on other people. And he he offers Peter money for the power to bestow the Holy Spirit. Simon the magician he was. And we know that he was lost because of Peter's response to him. 
Peter rebukes him heartily. Peter says, you have no part in this. Peter says that you are uh, on a path to perdition, that you need to repent. Simon was a classic example of someone with instant elation, but without a root. He looked good at first, but he wasn't truly saved. Listen to me carefully. You can be amazed, but not saved. You can be elated and joyful and caught up in the glories of Christianity without true repentance and faith. It happens all the time. John MacArthur describes this very well in his commentary on Matthew 13. He says this about this person. He cannot say enough good about the gospel, the preacher, the church, and the Lord. He is on an emotional high. He's in a state of grand euphoria. He is certain that he has found the answer to his felt needs. He has been accepted with those who believe. And he can't wait to tell everyone of the new meaning, purpose, and happiness in his life. Because his emotional response to the gospel is so immediate and positive, listen carefully, this sort of convert convert stands out above most others. He stands out. He's noticed quickly among others. He, he goes on, he says, he is often more vocal in talking about his experience and may even be zealous in church attendance, Bible study, and prayer for a while. End quote. In other words, he's all leafy surface emotions without a root of real response. Now we need to contrast this second with the first. Unlike the first condition where it never penetrated at all, this soil offers no resistance at all. Did you notice that? There's no resistance at all to the message. It's an immediate embrace, and that's a problem. It comes without understanding then. This person, Jesus tells us, they're without understanding. They do not understand the depths of their sin. They do not understand the reality of hell. They do not understand why Jesus Christ died, why he had to die, why that was necessary for their purpose in life, for their happiness, for their new meaning. They haven't counted the cost. They don't understand repentance. It's just a, it's just a surface emotional elation in the moment that quickly fades away. I had one of these in high school before I was converted. I was in the 11th grade and heard an emotional gospel appeal that just tugged on the heartstrings. It was a masterful presentation. And I filled out a card and I raised a hand and I prayed the prayer that I was told to pray. I'm a classic. At this point, in my life is a classic example of this, because as soon as it was over, my first thought was, I don't want any of my friends to know about this. I didn't want any affliction. I didn't want any persecution because of the word. I wanted to continue to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to still love the world. And it was just in the moment, a, a, a junior in high school, getting caught up in the emotion of a smooth speaking evangelist. But there was no root whatsoever. It's not a good thing to offer no resistance at all, because no resistance indicates no thoughtfulness. 
no, no considering, no weighing out, no pondering, no counting the cost. No, what is this going to mean for my future life? What is actually being asked of me here? What is being demanded of me here? Someone has well said, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. So this person hasn't counted the cost. Jesus says there that he has no root. Notice that in verse 21, he has no root in himself. No root here means no understanding that leads to a true commitment. There's no true faith commitment. He's not rooted. He's not grounded. He's going to be easily withered and easily burned up. In fact, it was so easy, it was the first test. The first test comes along whenever it comes, and immediately the text says he's scandalized. This word means he's angered. He's shocked. To be scandalized means to be caused to stumble. It means to to apostatize. It means to fall away completely. And so... The persecution or the test, the severe trial comes. And because this is a a, a shallow quasi-disciple, immediately, verse 21, he falls away. Immediately the thing sprang up and immediately he falls away. What's happened then is he's failed the critical test of perseverance, endurance. He's failed, the, he's failed the critical test that a true Christian remains a Christian until you die. You cannot walk away completely and apostatize and be a true disciple, a true Christian. It's impossible. Jesus said this in John eight thirty one. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. I've had people sometimes argue and push back with me. They don't like me saying true Christian. Or true disciple. And say, so why do you say that? I mean, a Christian is a Christian. A disciple is a disciple. I say, no, 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 the Bible says that. John 8.31 says that. If then, it's an if then proposition. If you continue in my word, Jesus says, then you are truly disciples of mine. You see, there are false disciples. There are pretend disciples. There are nominal quasi-Christians. And then there are the real Christians, the true Christians. And a true Christian remains a Christian until death. A true Christian continues to repent until death. A true Christian continues to believe until death. This is the way Christianity works. Paul himself would warn in Colossians 1 verses 22 and 23. He says there, That we are reconciled through the cross. We are reconciled if we continue. We are reconciled if we continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. This is Colossians 1, 22 and 23. What Jesus is describing here in this second soil is the fair weather fan. He's describing the person who's building their life on the sand of emotion, not the Rock of faith in Christ. See how this all ties together with the rest of Matthew? He's describing someone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's describing someone who likes to talk about my father's will, but is not interested in doing his father's will. It's a fair weather fan. And then when the storms of pressure come, maybe it comes in mocking, maybe it comes in criticism from your friends or your family. Being ostracized, maybe it comes as persecution. When the storms of persecution come to bear on you, then this person crumbles and they wash downstream. Like so many houses washed away by floods. 
Fellow seed sower, please hear this. We must know the difference then between shallow interest and real repentance. Fellow seed sower, we must be careful not to affirm mere leaves. Let's wait. Let's be patient. Let's let's see if there's going to be fruit coming forth and not just mere leaves that will wither under the noonday sun. The third result, the third result when we sow seeds is the seed is choked out by cares of this world pictured as smothering thorns. Look at verse 7. Other seeds fell among the thorns, the briars, and the thorns came up and choked them out, strangled them to death. So you got a picture. If you've been out in farm country, you've seen this. You have hedgerows, right, that, that border fields, and they're not plowed up. They're hedgerows, and they're generally thickets, what we call them briar patches. You know, it's where, it's where the rabbits hide out. It's where the quail are, you know. you got these hedgerows in between the plowed fields. And so as you're sowing seed, inevitably the wind carries some of the seed off into the briar thicket. I mean, the soil is okay down in there, but it's just, it's what it's growing right now is not the crop. It's just growing an abundance of weeds. And so the seed here is, is, is going to germinate. It can find its way into the dirt and it can germinate just like, just like your grass can germinate in your yard, though the yard might be dominated by weeds. But it can't grow. The, the, the germinated plant can't grow because the briars, the briars smother it. The briars choke it. The, the weeds, what do the weeds do? They do just what all these junipers around here do. They take up all the water. The weeds take the nourishment. The weeds block the sunlight from getting to the plant. And so the, the little seeds in there are trying to grow and then it's just crushed by the weeds. And then we go to verse 22 for our private tutoring. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, for most normal human beings, it would take two hands to strangle someone. It's graphic words here, folks. Jesus gives us two hands. The the weeds are strangling and one hand is the worries and cares of this world. And the other hand is the deceitfulness, or it even can be translated pleasure of wealth. And you put those two together and it chokes it to death. Chokes it to death. Oh, there's so much that could be said here about the worries of the world, right? Anxieties and cares of this world system fitting in, being accepted, looking right, sounding right, believing right. The worry of the world. It's the stuff that people that are not saved are concerned about, consumed with. It can be fear of death. It can be anxiety of illness. It can be all kinds of things that just mark the worldling. Are you with me? That just marks the person who's just consumed with the here and now. A person whose mind's not set on eternity. It's just all about family and all about health and all about money and all about my house and all about my job and and how my kids are going to do. And I'm just preoccupied with everything of this temporal earth. And and it's just a it's a gigantic weed that just wraps around the, the little seedling plant and chokes it to death. It's an entire mindset, an entire worldview that lives for the world. It's the person who hasn't been crucified to this world. Lives for entertainment, lives for sports, lives for food, lives for the things that that this world lives for. And so you look at the so-called Christian and the so-called person in the world, and I can't see a difference. 
They live the same way. They care about the same things. They're consumed with the same worries. This is this is a problem. This is a quasi Christian as this chokes out the, the word. And then the other side of this, the other hand is deceitfulness of wealth. Now, now keep in mind, Jesus is being representative here, not exhaustive. Uh, these are not all the things that would choke the word. It's just two out of many, right? And he picks wealth and he and he picks either the pleasure of wealth or the deceitfulness of wealth. The lie that money will make me happy or the lie that I just need a little more to be content or the lie that I need bigger and better and newer all the time. That's the deceitfulness of wealth that my iPhone seven's not going to get it done. I've got to get the 12, you know, and next year I'll have to get the 13. I always got to have the best gadget. I always got to have the newest, best clothes or the newest, nicest car. It's the pleasure of wealth. Or it's the, the deceitfulness of wealth that this wealth in my life is a sign that God approves of my life. That God is pleased with me. That's a, that's a lie of wealth. That has nothing to do with it. It's the lie that wealth will keep me from worry. And that wealth will make me happy. That wealth is what I'm missing. And on and on it goes. The list of the lies of wealth are endless. It's a false god. It's an idol. It cannot save and it cannot satisfy. You cannot buy eternal life and you cannot pay for your sins no matter how much money you give the church. It's the, it's the deceitfulness of wealth. Not understanding that it all comes from God, that God is the great provider and I'm just a manager and a, and a, and a steward. One lie of wealth is that you own anything. You don't. You don't own a single thing in this world. You're just borrowing everything as a steward, as a manager that God has entrusted to us. And so these two hands choke this this word, this seed, this plant. Worldly thinking is the longing to be loved by the world and respected by the world. People could be um, preoccupied then with fashion, cars, shoes, music, media, business, your family, sports, your career, your hobbies, money in general. And before the little plant can grow, these worldly weeds just smother it. Just smother it out. That's the third soil. Now you look at these thir- first three, right? The seed is snatched away. The seed is scorched. And the seed is choked. And you look at that and they all have one common denominator. Well, there's probably more than one. It's the same seed. And soil is soil. Dirt is dirt. The one common glaring denominator of these first three is that none of them bear fruit. All of them are barren of a crop. All of them are barren of fruitfulness. And notice this, disciples, this is for us again. This is for us to learn what happens when we sow seed. Three out of the four reject. I'm not saying that strict math that we apply across the world, but I'm just saying there's a point here, right? 75% of the soils refuse. 75% of the the soils don't bear fruit. 75% are not true Christians, not true disciples. Only the last one is a true Christian. Only the last one bears fruit. Only the last one has a root. Only the last one is plugged into Christ. Only the last one is a branch plugged into the vine. It is the final soil condition that is the true Christian. The majority will reject what has Jesus already told us in this gospel. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to what? Destruction. And the the gate is narrow and the path is 
small that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so now he comes to the parable of the sower, the parable of the results of what happens to the seed. And one out of the four are the few who find it. The soil condition that actually bears fruit. Look at verse eight. Others fell on the good soil. That's never been said before up to this point and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. He who has ears, let him hear you people standing out there in the crowd. There's a message here for you. You better pay attention. You better listen carefully. You better think about this. If you've got ears to hear, let you hear. You need to pay attention. You need to go home and ponder what I've just told you people in the crowd. Good soil. What's the difference then between this soil and the hard packed soil that uh, fell by the wayside and the soil with uh, that wasn't deep enough and the soil with briars? What is the one difference, farmers? This has been plowed. This soil has been prepared. This soil has been tilled. The dirt has been turned up and is ready for the seed. That's the difference. That's the difference. Now look at this yield that comes forth from this good soil. It was said that in Palestine during this time to plant seed, you would have and expect an eight to one yield. One seed would yield eight. Jesus at the low end is 30. And then twice that to 60. And then all the way up to 100. These are extraordinary yields. These are outlandish yields. These are yields beyond anything anyone has ever experienced in farming. He is saying that even the least of these in this category is going to be an abundant fruit bearer. Now, notice this about the fruit bearing of verse eight. Two things you need to notice. Number one, everyone in this category bears fruit. He didn't go down to zero, did he? He didn't go 160, 30, none. All bear fruit, number one. But notice also, number two, that the fruit varies. And it varies greatly. I mean, 100 is more than three times of 30. So there's a huge range of production within this good soil. Now, verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 100 fold, some 60 and some 30. What changed? One thing changed. He understands. He understands. This is what changed. This was the game changer. All who understand will then bear fruit. If you truly understand, you truly bear fruit. And the fruit that you bear is more understanding. We'll see next week. More knowledge. If you have some knowledge, you'll get more knowledge. If you have no knowledge, what you think you have will be taken away from you. The first thing that we bear as fruit as Christians is a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of being a Christian, of God, of Christ, of salvation. You start at this very narrow, very small level of understanding. And as you go along through your Christian life, it just gets deeper and wider. And out of that understanding and out of that knowledge comes more and more obedience, more and more works, more and more fruit. Okay. This is so critical to see. The Christian life is a life of more, more, more. It's a life that is an upward 
progression in the things of knowledge and in the things of godly behavior. The Christian life doesn't go backwards. The Christian life goes forward. We don't die more and more each day. We grow more and more each day. And he bears fruit, present tense. He brings forth, present tense. It's an abiding, ever-increasing fruit over the course of the life. As Jesus said in John fifteen eight, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so underline this, all Christians take root and all Christians bear fruit. No exceptions. No exceptions. All Christians take root and all Christians bear fruit. Yet within that, some bear more fruit than others. So I just played around with this a little bit. This is just for fun. Hundredfold, Paul and Peter and James and John. Sixtyfold, Andrew, Matthew, Timothy, and Apollos. Thirtyfold, Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus. <laughs> right? Even among the twelve, variety of, of production. And so it will be with every fruit bearing Christian. So, sower of seed, fellow sower of seed, yes, yes, we must expect that there will be hard hearted rejection, short lived elation. World-loving distraction. But praise God, we also need to know and believe that by the grace of God, there will be abundant production. And there will be fruitfulness. We will cast a seed that will fall on soil that is tilled and ready for that gospel message. I want to close quickly with four encouragements for seed sowers, and then we'll be done. Number one, sow with patience. Sow with patience. Mature fruit bearing does not happen overnight. Whether we're talking about a wheat field or a peach tree or a disciple. So with patience. Parents, parents, you listen to me? So with patience. Evangelist, son, daughter, brother, sister, husband, wife, so with patience. Do not expect abundant fruit bearing overnight. It doesn't happen in any realm. Number two, so with hope. So with hope, the wind of God's Spirit will inevitably carry the seed to the prepared soil. We sow indiscriminately. We don't know what the prepared soil is. People don't have an E for election stamped on their forehead. <laughs> we just broadcast the gospel. But we do it with hope because we know that God has his people out there, that God has his elect and the spirit of God will take that seed to that prepared soil. And so we can be confident it is the very sovereignty of God that God gets the glory, that God produces the results that gives us encouragement to sow the seed in the first place. So with patience, so with hope. Number three, sow the true seed. Sow the true seed. You cannot genetically alter the seed. Okay. You cannot re-engineer it. Don't start tampering with it, tinkering with it, trying to change it, trying to improve it, trying to make it a better seed. Sow the seed, the true seed. And then number four, just sow. Just sow. A child can toss seed as well as a seminary professor. Maybe even better. A Christian teenager can reach their friend far better than the coolest youth pastor ever. Sow the seed. Just sow. 
A stay-at-home mom can sow seed as well as any famous missionary that we celebrate in the church history. Sow the seed. A feeble nursing home resident can cast seed. It's not too heavy. The seed is not too heavy. Even the most feeble of nursing home residents can broadcast the seed of God's good news. Sow with patience, sow with hope, sow the true seed, and just sow. Father in heaven, may these encouragements stir us up to action. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.